0: Good morning. Do you know that a survey was done years ago that asked people what their greatest fear is? Um, and death was on the list, but, but public speaking was number one um, above death. And I'm feeling it right now. I haven't, I don't, I haven't felt this in a while. So um, I want to pray, and then I'll introduce myself a little more. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the chance to uh, just spend time talking about you. You're worthy of all the talk we could give. You're worthy of all the the life we could give. You're worthy. Thank you for your great name, Jesus. And I pray right now that you move in each of our hearts, meet our needs. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As Pastor Rick said, my name is Brian Hennon. Um, I was a youth pastor for 15 years. I wanted to die a youth pastor, um, but God changed those plans and called my wife and I to plant a church. Uh, we're still trying to figure out why that was because we closed that church after about five years. Uh, it was a hard five years, a good five years. I have a couple friends here who, who helped sacrifice a great deal for that. Um, but God led us here to daybreak. Um, the day that Rick made the announcement um, that things were changing here, about over a year ago in August, and um, my wife and I were sitting in the back thinking, why are we here today? And then we drove home wondering if we should go back. But we loved the authenticity of your pastors. We loved the honesty. And most importantly, we heard things that we loved where this church is focusing their energy outward to the community. We love that. I believe a church should be a light to the community, not a light to themselves. We don't hide our light. We show our light, right? And we love that. So we decided to give it another try. We came back and we experienced the same thing the next week and the next week after that. And I won't lie, now that I'm not a pastor, we don't come every week. Um, but, um, and it's nice to not have to come every week. But um, we try to get here as often as we can. Um, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to share the Word of God this morning with you. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to look there. If not, it will be up on the screen. But I want to play a little game with you this morning, and I want to ask you a question. What do these following people have in common? Feel free to answer after I'm done reading their names. Kobe Bryant, Steve Young, Brett Favre, Jerome Bettis, Bill Russell, and Babe Ruth. Anyone know what they have in common? What? Professional sports. sports. What else? Anything else? Retired, Retired. good. Champions, good. Good. They're all legends, right? They're all in the Hall of Fame, right? But here's another one. They were all traded or bought and sold by their former team. Kobe Bryant was picked up by the Lakers after the Lakers traded Vlad Divac to Charlotte for the 13th round, 13th pick in the, in the draft. You think Charlotte regretted that trade? Everyone ever heard of Vlad Divac? Who heard of Kobe Bryant, okay? Steve Young was traded by Tampa Bay in 1987 to the 49ers because the the Buccaneers didn't want to wait for him to develop. They felt confident in their QB, Vinny Testaverde. How many Super Bowls does Vinny have? How many does Steve have? Okay. Brett Favre was traded by the Falcons to the Packers in 1992 for a first-round draft pick for a first round pick in the draft. Five years later, the pack won the Super Bowl. The next year they went back. Does anyone remember who the Falcons chose number one in that draft? Me neither. (laughs) Jerome Bettis was traded to the Steelers in 1996. The Rams got two draft picks for them. The Steelers got a Hall of Fame running back. Does anyone know who those two draft picks were? Nope, me neither. In 1956, the St. Louis Hawks traded Bill Russell to the Celtics. The Celtics got the best center of all time and 11 NBA titles with that. The Hawks got two men named Ed McCauley and Cliff Hagan. Who's heard of them? No, no one. Finally, here's my favorite one. If you're not a sports person, you, I know you've heard of this guy, Babe Ruth. Hopefully you'll recognize that name. If you watch the Lot, you know he's the Sultan of SWAT, the great Bambino, um, And he's a baseball legend, a god of baseball. He was purchased by the Yankees from the Red Sox for $100,000 plus a $300,000 loan. Do you know what the loan was used for? To finance a musical called No, No, Nanette. Has anyone seen No, No, Nanette? Does anyone know who Babe Ruth is? No one knows who Babe Ruth was? Come on now. (laughs) Ruining this. No. I'm guessing there was a lot of regret around those trades. I'm guessing the owners who made those trades and made those deals later on really felt like idiots. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But one thing you need to know about me, if I ever get invited to speak again, is I'm a big fan of review. So I want to review a little bit about what Pastor Rick talked about last week, just so we're all on the same page. Because I'm guessing there are a lot of people like me, you have difficulty remembering what happened five minutes ago. So to ask you to go back last week and remember what happened last week, that's a little nuts. So last week, we introduced a new series called No Filter. And we saw that there is a conflict between who we are, who we are supposed to be. But there's also a conflict between who we really are and who who we think others expect us to be. We need to understand this conflict, embrace and embrace who we really are. And until we do, we cannot find and live the life God has for us and fully experience the blessings he has for us. If we're too wrapped up in what others think or what we think others think or what we think others should think we think, we'll have a difficult time hearing what God thinks and hearing the voice of Jesus. I'm pretty sure that is part of what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run the race with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Many years ago, I was at Army basic training in Relax in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Our introductory, introduction to that basic training was by our first sergeant, Cruz, and his speech went something like this. In order for you to graduate from basic training, there are three things you must do. Uh, Do what you're told. Do what you're told. Anyone guess what the third one was? Do what you're told. Very good. So I think that's a lot. That's basically what what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If we're going to live, walk with Jesus, and we're going to live without filters, not worrying about what anybody else thinks or anyone else does, it's very similar. If we're going to experience all that God has and run this race, For us, marked out for us, enjoying the freedom he promises and the joy that he he offers, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. What's the third one? Fix our eyes on Jesus. But the problem is we spend far too much time fixing our eyes on other things, right? And that leads to decisions that steal the life that God has for us. We lose sight of what is truly valuable and we make some really bad trades. In the process. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Last week, Pastor Rick introduced us to Jacob, which I just figured out. That's pretty cool. Pastor Rick Jacobs introduced us to Jacob. So that's great. Um, just, I go off topic sometimes. Just bear with me. Um, he gave us a broad view of Jacob, Esau, Isaac, and Rebecca, and that whole story. And today we're going to focus on one specific part. So take a look at Genesis 25, 20 through, 24 through 34. And we're going to kind of break this up a little bit says, when the time came for her to give birth, Rebecca, there were, two, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. Now, let's just stop for a moment and, and enjoy this scene. Those of you who have children, you know what the birth was like, right? If you were in the birthing room, the women, you were there. Uh, men, you may not have been. I was. But had my son come out like this? I mean, this guy looked like Chewbacca. All right? Red and hairy. And I mean, admit it, that would have freaked you out a bit, wouldn't it? I mean, hair, more hairy than the dad. Um, but let's move on. Uh, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Now, I know Rick covered this last week, but I want to point it out again that <laughs> Jacob literally means heel grabber. Now, enjoy, here's the irony of that. When his mom was calling him for dinner, she wasn't saying, she was saying Jacob, but everybody heard, heel grabber, come in for dinner. Hey, heel grabber. Stop playing with your sister. Stop fighting with your brother. Stop doing that. Whatever. So it also means to watch from behind, which perfectly explains Jacob's life later on. He was an opportunist. He stood in the back in the shadows and waited for his his moment to strike and to come out and get what he wanted. But Esau's name is, is interesting as well. His name has a loose connection to the Hebrew word for Edom, which is a city southeast of the Dead Sea where Esau would live later, but a city that was also a main arch rival of Israel. So this was this was a their name was a fulfillment of the prophecies that God had given. Just their name is what signified the sovereignty of God in action and what was going to happen. And we can read about that later in Romans chapter 9, where God says, where Paul says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Um, and it's a confusing passage, and if, if you want to know more about that, call Pastor Rick. Um, so, it's the greatest part about being a guest speaker is you could just kind of throw things out there and then walk away. Um, but let's look at the rest of this passage. The boys grew up, I don't know if you like that. Uh, <laughs> the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. Isaac... Who Had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Parents, first of all, don't do that. All right, don't don't put your kids against each other. That leads to some pretty unhealthy things. But once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom, Edom meaning red, which was Esau's nickname. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. Talk about hyperbole. little melodramatic, aren't we, Esau? What good is the birthright to me? but Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now this is pretty sad. He's trading his birthright for what? A bowl of soup and a bowl of red soup. I don't even know what that is. Maybe it's tomato soup. I don't know. But as the older sibling, his inheritance was twice the value of Jacob's. And that may not seem like a big deal to us, but for them it was. Now, anyone have a pen they can borrow? Anyone have a pen? Thank you. Now, who owns the, the Nissan 370Z out there in the parking lot? Who owns that car? Nobody wants to admit that? It's okay to own it. It's really okay. Who has a really nice car? Anyone have a Corvette in here? It's okay to own a Corvette. Really? Who has a really nice car? Nobody? Well, it ruins my illustration. Thank you. <laughs> I think you're embarrassed to admit it, aren't you? No, you don't have to be. I've, my son was somewhat disappointed we didn't get to go to supercars on State Street yesterday. Um, instead, we went to Knoebels, which was more fun. But um, what I was going to do was trade a pen for the keys to your car, which would have been a really horrible trade, uh, but it didn't work. Maybe the second service will be much more... Um, Participatory, um. <laughs> but that's how stupid this is. A bowl of soup, temporary satisfaction, in exchange for something of extreme value—something that was going to meet his physical needs for the rest of his life. That's nuts, isn't it? We'd never do that, right? I mean, we'd never take on more debt than we can afford because we had to have that car or that boat. We'd never trade our our integrity. To save a few dollars on our taxes? I mean, we'd never trade our purity or sacrifice our marriage for a few moments of pleasure. We'd never do any of that, would we? Okay, maybe we do understand what Esau is doing after all. Esau made a bad trade, giving up something that can satisfy his needs for years to come for something that will satisfy him only for a few moments. And we've all done the same thing, every one of us. So how do we overcome that temptation How how do we overcome the temptation to give up what we need most for what we want right now? And what is it we want? What is it everyone wants? To be loved, to belong, to be worthy, to know that we have people who care about us. Ultimately, those are our greatest needs, but we'll never truly get those things by compromising. Compromising leads to bad trades, and bad trades lead to regrets, and those regrets lead to more bad trades to cover those former bad trades. And we see here, we we can learn how to avoid those bad trades by this story. We see here that the boys grew up. What does that mean? They were about 30 years old at this point. Now think about that. 30 years old and still fighting like children. How many of you know someone like that? They look grown up, they sound grown up, but they don't act grown up. I know we all know someone like this because sometimes they're looking at us in the mirror. We throw a tantrum and we don't get what we want. Our tantrums don't look like a child's tantrum. They're more grown up and sophisticated. We give the silent treatment or we yell and scream at others and disrespect them or you know we're right, they're wrong. I think we all know what I'm saying. It is possible to grow physically while remaining an emotional child. Esau grew up. He was a skillful hunter. He was a man's man, hairy and smelly. He didn't have deodorant back then. I mean, he was really good at what he did. He looked grown up, but his heart was still immature. So was Jacob's. He was good, but Esau was good at hunting and killing dinner, but horrible at controlling his appetite. And that can easily happen to me and you as well. We can grow our skills, but not our character. We can be gifted and successful, but, in a lot of, but be in a lot of danger because we didn't grow our character. And we didn't even know it was happening, and Esau didn't either. And he compromised and made a really bad trade because his appetite was more grown up than his heart. Than his character, and that's the first lesson we need to take from this: beware of mistaking growth for maturity. Beware of mistaking growth for maturity. If you're writing down in your bulletins in the scoop, anyone ever hear of a man named Robert Babrotsky? Babrotsky. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Um, You'll see a couple pictures of him in a second, but he's an 18-year-old Romanian, and he's seven foot seven. When he was eight years old, he was six foot two. Now, I'm going to be honest and tell you, if I were a basketball coach and I saw him walking down the hallway at school, I'm recruiting him. I'm asking him to be on the team. I mean, he can dunk without moving. Why wouldn't you want him on the team? But here's the problem for Robert. He looks grown up. Look how immense he looks eating dinner with those guys. He looks grown up, but his body grew so fast that his bones, tendons, ligaments, his lungs, his heart, and muscles haven't caught up yet. As a result, he can only play about five minutes of every game or practice. He's on a five thousand calorie a day diet to try and build him, build his muscle, and build his body up because he looks like a basketball player, doesn't he? But if you can't play basketball, then are you a basketball player? Ask Sean Bradley if you know him. Just kidding, that was totally bad. If if you know Sean Bradley, don't tell him I said that. Um, But Esau looked like an adult. I mean, he'd been shaving since birth. He looked like an adult. He was really good at doing manly things. But his heart and his character hadn't caught up with the rest of him. He was impulsive and he had trouble controlling his appetite. And I'm sure we're all like that at times. Maybe we're really good at at making money. We can make money like this, but it goes goes out as fast as it comes in. We're not good at investing. We're not good at giving that away and being generous with it. We, we trade a legacy of generosity for the newest toys. Maybe someone is really good at hunting new relationships. You know the right things to say, the right moves to make, but you have no depth and you keep trading love for short-term thrills. We need to be careful not to mistake growth for maturity. And as a side note, that danger exists for churches as well. Churches can look really grown up and big on the outside, but really immature on the inside. That hasn't been our case with with Daybreak, but we've experienced that in other places, and we need to be careful of that. But another way of saying this is beware of zeal without knowledge. Beware of zeal without knowledge. Proverbs 19.2 says, Desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? Now, I grew up in southern York County in Glen Rock, outside of Glen Rock, where my parents live right across from the Heritage Rail Trail. Anyone ride your bike on the rail trail? They live right across from it, um, but it wasn't always the the, the Heritage Rail Trail. When I was growing up, it was a railroad that had been destroyed by Hurricane Agnes. In other words, a young boy's dream. Okay? with endless supplies of railroad spikes and railroad ties with which we could build forts like you can't imagine. We have an underground fort that we built. It's still there. I don't think you can go in it anymore, but it's still made out of railroad ties and everything else. Um, but we, we would build forts and we would have so much fun there. But the best part was the bridge that went over the Cadoras Creek. It was about 20 feet, maybe 15, 20 feet off the water. And the water was about eight feet deep under. So I'm 13. Let's say you're 13 and you're on a bridge 15 feet off the water and the water's eight feet deep. What are you doing? Jumping, right? you're jumping. Well, that's what we did. We jumped, we flipped, we dared each other to try new stunts. We pushed each other. Um, you know, my parents still live there and we still walk across that bridge at times. And I'm going to tell you with absolute certainty that only an idiot would jump off that bridge. Someone with no knowledge, but a lot of zeal. In a semi-related note, I think this is why Paul talks about to Timothy in the book of First Timothy, not to appoint leaders of a church who are new in the faith, new converts. Because when I was new in the faith, when I was new, I I I was zealous, I was enthusiastic, and I couldn't figure out why all the old people weren't as excited as I was. I wanted everyone to know what I knew, but the problem is I didn't know anything. And as soon as I was challenged, or when life, the, the troubles of life started coming, I started to struggle. And that's kind of what's happening to Esau here. Verse 29 through 30 tell us that he went out to do what he was good at, hunting. But we see how he came home empty handed. So that makes me wonder how good was he really. But he came back hungry, desperate, and probably a bit hangry too. Y'all know what hangry is, right? The perfect opportunity for the heel grabber, the one who stands behind and waits for his opportunity that 's the danger for us all when we 're hungry spiritually, we get weak and desperate, and we run the risk of listening to the wrong voice and we try to satisfy our hungry to, hunger to fill a void in our spirit without with something that doesn 't satisfy us. Esau forgot who he was; he was the firstborn of Isaac, he was the big, strong hunter he got so hungry that he forgot his own strength and his own position and his own title. He forgot what he was capable of doing and what he was going to get. And the result for him was tragic. He gave up something of immense value for something that would satisfy him temporarily. Something that would satisfy him for his whole life, his inheritance, for something that would only satisfy him for a few moments. He gave up something he wanted Right, or Something he needed for something he wanted right now. And that leads us to the next point, point. Beware of unsatisfied appetites that become exaggerated emotions. Beware of unsatisfied appetites that become exaggerated emotions. Esau wanted to fill his stomach. But he traded something that would have filled his life. We must beware of this. And again, I'm gonna look at Paul and Timothy. When Paul talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4:16, he says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Esau got in trouble because he allowed his appetite to control his emotions. He didn't watch his life. And he didn't watch his doctrine. He forgot who he was. And he forgot what he was going to get. We have to beware of this. We have to watch our life. Literally, that means watch yourself or check yourself before you wreck yourself. It's a, the modern day translation of that. We have to watch our life. Watch what's around us. Watch what we're hungry for. But we have to watch our doctrine too. And I know some people don't like doctrine. You think doctrine is divisive and it, has, it is and it can be. But I, d- doctrine is incredibly important. And literally, Paul means here the teaching. Watch the teaching. What is The teaching. To find that, we can look in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised according to the scriptures. Hear that again. First importance. What's the teaching we're supposed to watch? First importance. Not second. Not after I get my degree and my job. Not after I buy my vacation home. First importance. First importance. That means if I get this first thing right, we stand a good chance of getting all the other things right after it. But it also means, conversely, if I get the first thing wrong, I'm probably going to get a lot wrong after it. It's like following instructions, ladies, because I know men don't. If you're following instructions, you get the first step wrong. The rest aren't going to fall into place. The first thing is whom? What's the first importance? Jesus. He died. He, rose, he was buried. He rose again, right? That's the first thing we get that wrong, it's going to be hard to get other things right. Why did he do all that? So that I could have what my heart longs for. So I can avoid making bad traits. So that I can know that I'm, a lo- that I'm loved. First John chapter 3, 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life. You want to be loved? That's love. What else do we want? We want to be accepted. How about Ephesians 1, 3? For he chose us. He chose us in him to become, or to be before the creations of the world, to be holy and blameless. He chose us. This isn't like the playground in first grade where we're the last one to get picked. God picked you. What else do we want? We want to know that we have hope. And Hebrews says we have this hope as an anchor to our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Those are the things that I want. Who doesn't want them? That's what my spiritual stomach growls for. And if I starve myself of what I really need, and if I reject who Jesus says I really am, I am going to compromise, and so will you. And I will do things that will no longer, that will, that will only make me hungrier. And I'll make a lot of really bad trades. If, if we're starving ourselves for what we really need, we will make decisions that we will really regret. And that regret will lead to guilt, and soon we will be overwhelmed and weighed down by it. And I have to think, if only Esau had had a friend, someone would come along beside him and say, dude, what are you doing? Why would you trade this birthright for a bowl of soup? Why would you do that? There's something greater waiting for you, Esau. Can I tell you that that's what the church is for? We can, we can gather and hear the word of God. We can join a small group. We can remind each other that there is something better. You, need, you don't need that stew. You don't need to jump off that bridge. Don't make that trade. Author C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. Infinite joy is offered to us, but, but the only but not only infinite joy, but infinite hope, unshakable peace, eternal and perfect love. And so we can't trade what we need most for what we want now. That's the next point. Don't trade what we need, what you need most for what you want right now. We've gotta grow up on the inside. We've gotta feed our souls with the bread of life and quench our thirst with the living water. If we don't, we're gonna be in danger. Don't forget, danger of forgetting who we are. Danger of forgetting who God called us. So don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you have an inheritance. Some of you may not have heard, never have heard that. Did you, you have an inheritance. If you are a follower of Christ, you have an inheritance. If you're not a follower of Christ, you can have an inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You and I are God's greatest possession. He loves you. All the riches of heaven are ours in Christ. The Bible calls us co-heirs with Christ. We're gonna be seated with him. I don't know how all of us are gonna be seated next to him, but that's, for, that's logistics God has to worry about. But man, we're gonna be seated in the heavenlies with him. You have a purpose greater than you can imagine. Don't trade your joy for anger and grumbling. Don't trade your peace for resentment and grudges. Don't trade your kindness for sarcastic, sarcastic wit. Don't trade your love for false intimacy, either in the flesh or virtual. Don't do it. Listen to me, I've done those things. And so has a lot of other people in this room. Let Jesus fill your hunger. Let the Spirit of God fill you so that you don't trade what you need for what you want right now. Don't do it. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are exactly what I need. And I thank you that you forgive me when there are times when I think I need something else. And so I pray right now as we prepare to come before your table that you would, for those of us who have made bad trades today or yesterday or plan to make bad trades tomorrow, God, would you call us back? Would you remind us that that suit may look good, but you're better? Would you remind us that that bridge may look fun to jump off, but you're better? And as we take the Lord's Supper together, would you remind us that, Jesus, what you did for us, and help us to rejoice in that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to ask you a question, while the before we start singing, before we take the Lord's Supper, what's your bowl of soup? What are you compromising? What's your bridge? What are you jumping off of, thinking it's going to be valuable and it's going to be good and it's going to meet your needs? What are you trading right now? Or What are you thinking about trading? Or what have you already traded? We've all been there. We've all been there. If I ask everyone to raise their hand, if they made a bad trade, everyone would probably raise their hand. And if they're not, then I don't think you're being honest. That's the beauty of the church. It's filled with people who've Compromised. have made some really bad trades don't be ashamed of that God already knows it happened and Jesus already died to forgive it and so we're going to spend a few moments now and I want you to take your response card out if you feel led and I want you to write down what you're trading what you've traded if you feel led to do that write it down what have you traded And can I tell you something? Before we take the Lord's Supper, that table, those tables, they represent a trade too. The Bible says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a trade. This is what is known as substitutional atonement. What it means is God saw me when I was 20 years old and I was drunk. In my sin, living in my shame, drinking away my guilt, trying to drown out of several years of bad trades. And he said, That guy right there, I want him on my team. He traded his one and only son for me. Now that looks like a ridiculous trade. On the outside, if I'm looking and I'm seeing that, perfection for foolishness, sinfulness for shame, glory for guilt, strength for weakness. Why would God make that trade? But he did, and I'm so thankful he did. And you know what? He did it for everyone in this room as well. Don't care what you've done. Don't care what you're planning on doing. He did it for you. That's the beauty of the Lord's table. It isn't for people who have it all together. It's for people who need Jesus. People who've made a lot of bad trades. And I don't know what church traditions you grew up in, but I know I've met a lot of people over the years who don't feel comfortable taking the Lord's Supper because they don't feel worthy. Can I tell you, that's the point of the Lord's Supper. You're not worthy. Neither am I. I'll never obey enough, I'll never confess enough, I'll never serve enough, I'll never give enough, and if I think I have, then all I have to do is look at the cross, compare myself to that, and I'll realize that I'm far from it. This table is for people who are needy, people who are broken, people who have made some really bad trades, but we rejoice with it. We rejoice with it because we know that even though we're unworthy, Jesus makes us worthy by his blood, by his sacrifice. He now says you are worthy because of Jesus. So no matter what you wrote down or thought about when I asked you earlier, I want you to come to this table. This is the only place where you will find what you are really looking for. So while the worship team is playing, write down something. Spend a little time with the Lord. And when you're ready, come up and get, a, get the cup and get the bread and hold on to it so we can take the Lord's Supper together.